I want to begin by asking uh, you the question, where do you find your security? Where do you find your security? In my house growing up, our security was found in the lock on the front door. I remember my mum in particular was very, she was quite anxious about this. She was always anxious that the doors were locked at night. And so each night we would go through this ritual in our house. First, after dinner, mum would go and make sure the front door was locked. And then maybe about an hour later, she'd ask me, hey, Andrew, can you just go and check to make sure the front door is locked? Uh, and then she'd get into her pyjamas later on that night. And before she went to bed, she would go past the front door and make sure it was locked. And then just as she was falling off to sleep, and this happened literally every single night, just as she was falling off to sleep, she'd wake up in a panic and boot my dad out of bed and say, hey, honey, can you go make sure the front door is locked? the final time and then and only then could mum sleep secure at night Uh, only then did she feel safe now I'm not sure if you live with someone like that or whether you're that person in your flat but where do you find your security what do you have in your life what is the thing that you look to that makes you feel like you can sleep safe and sound at night like everything is going to be okay And I'm not talking about alarms or locks or security cameras, uh, but what thing in your life, in your world, makes you feel like everything's okay? Well, everything will work out if you have that thing. For a lot of people, it's financial security, it's money in the bank, it's knowing that there's a nest egg they're growing or an asset to their name. For a lot of people, uh, my age and older, it's insurance, knowing they've got the right insurance. You know, you can insure your car and your house and your contents and your income and your life and your pet. And so knowing that everything's insured makes them feel safe. It means that if everything goes wrong, you can just call the bank manager and the insurance broker and you'll be okay. Uh, Lots of people find security in their career. Uh, They've got something to fall back on. Maybe even now you're working your way to a skill or a, a qualification that means that you'll always be in demand. You'll always be able to make a crust. A lot of us find security in relationships whether it be a particular person or just a group of people which you belong to, a group of people that will take care of you. Uh, Maybe it's your parents, knowing that your parents will always bail you out, knowing that there's always a warm bed, a meal and a fridge to raid if you desperately need it. But where do you find your security? What is it that you have or what is it that you think that you need so that you can sleep secure at night, so you can rest easy? Now, I want to say there's nothing wrong with the desire to feel safe. The search for security and safety and assurance, it's it's part and parcel of living in the world that we live in. Uh, The Bible is honest about the world around us. The Bible says that because of sin, we live in a dog-eat-dog world, which means that instability and insecurity, they're part of the course of life in this world. And so we're all looking for something that's going to make us feel secure, something that's going to protect us in an unpredictable and hostile environment. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's perfectly fine. That's sensible. That's rational in the world that we live in. But where can we find real and lasting security? Well, this is what the people of God were looking for, as we are going to see in this part of 1 Samuel. Uh, They were looking for safety and security so they could rest easy at night. Now, just to remind you, if um, you've forgotten or if uh, you haven't been here before, um, we're looking at this part of uh, the Bible and we believe that the Bible is one big story from creation to new creation and the Bible is all about how God is making the world good again, how he's making it all good and right again. Uh, The world, it was broken, it was corrupted by our sin and God promises right at the very beginning of the Bible that he's going to fix 
the world. Uh, and as we go through the Bible, we find out a little bit more about what, what his plans are to fix, that, fix the world. And in 1 Samuel, this book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament, we see for the first time that central to God's plans to fix the world is a king. He will send a king. And his king will bring an everlasting kingdom. Now the purpose of 1 Samuel is to prepare us to meet God's promised king. And sometimes the lessons we learn from 1 Samuel, they're lessons learned in the negative. Um, we see the, the foolish things that the people of God are doing and, and we, we learn the consequences of them. And, and so what the lesson we learn from 1 Samuel sometimes is a cautionary tale. Uh, when I was at Bible college, uh, all of my mates at Bible college, we would all scatter all over the city to work in different churches on Sundays. Uh, and then we'd come back to college on Monday and we'd often talk about the things that happened on the weekend uh, and the different things we were learning in our student minister jobs in the city, in and around the city. Uh, and, and often the lessons we learnt were in the negative. Uh, something would happen or something would be done and we'd go, well, you know that thing? I know how not to do it by what I saw on the weekend. I don't know how to do it, but I certainly know what not to do. And and, and it's a bit like that with 1 Samuel. Uh, We get these cautionary tales, ways to not seek after God. Um, And and so uh, we see here in 1 Samuel as well what the great king that God promises will be like by seeing how some of Israel's kings um, were not like uh, and so uh, the big idea that we're going to see from chapter 7 and 8 here is this. Uh, the big idea will be that real and lasting security can only be found when we have God as our king. Real and lasting security can only be found when we have God as our king. Safety and peace and stability can only come from being part of God's eternal kingdom. Uh, now, last week, uh, we saw that in this stage of Israel's history, their, their safety and their security is constantly under threat. There is a, a constant threat from the Philistines. Uh, they were the thorn in their side. And twice already in the book of 1 Samuel, the Philistines and Israel have gone toe-to-toe. And if you're keeping score, the score is Philistines 2, Israel nil. Uh, with the exception of the miraculous intervention of God last week, uh, the Philistines have, have beaten up the Israelites twice. And the Philistines, they're still there. They're still threatening. And along with that threat, Israel is suffering again with another leadership crisis. There is a leadership vacuum. The corrupt leaders, uh, they are gone, which is kind of praise the Lord for that. Hophni and Phinehas died as the Ark of the Lord was captured by the Philistines and their father, their incompetent father, uh, he died when he kind of quite literally fell off the perch. Uh, In chapter 5 it says that uh, Eli fell backwards off his chair by the side gate, his neck was broken and he died for he's an old man and he was very heavy. It's very diplomatic. Um, uh, In the kids' Bible, we're reading with our kids, uh, he died because he was old and very fat is what it said. Um, But Eli died, he fell off the perch, so uh, he was the leader of Israel at the time, and so there's this leadership crisis that's going on. There's this leadership crisis, there's no one to lead Israel, and there's this threat, the Philistines are breathing down their neck. And those two crises are linked together. You see, Israel needs a leader who can deal with the Philistines. They need a leader who can bring them peace and safety and security. And without even looking for a leader, Israel are given one. They're given one in the form of the priest and the prophet Samuel. Uh, have a look at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7. It would be great if you have the Bible open because uh, we'll be uh, looking a lot at the passages. Uh, and here in 1 Samuel chapter 7, we'll see that Samuel's leadership 
It transforms Israel. It transforms the people of God. Now, with all the action of the ark that took place in chapters 4 to 6, you might have forgotten about Samuel, apart from the fact the book's named after him. You might have forgotten about Samuel. He was the little boy that was born at the beginning. Uh, he's the one who heard the voice of God in chapter 3. He's the one who uh, received uh, uh, God's uh, blessing as a prophet. And he reappears here after being on a break. Uh, and he reappears here in chapter 7. And we're given three scenes of Samuel's leadership. And in these scenes, we see how Samuel transforms Israel. In the first scene, we see that Samuel leads Israel back to God, uh, leading them back to God. It's what the Bible calls repentance. Uh, Here's what Samuel says to Israel in verse 3. He says, If you are returning to the Lord, return with all your hearts. You see, Samuel, he goes to Israel as their leader and he says, You guys need genuine repentance. Uh, No more treating God like a lucky charm. No more religious rituals that you go through, but you keep God at a distance. You need genuine repentance with all of your heart. And Samuel also says that you need genuine repentance. That's also practical repentance. Again, verse 3. Then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the asterisks and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. One of the things that Samuel is saying to Israel is that genuine repentance is never just words. It's practical. It means change from their ungodly ways. It means real change. And the people respond, verse 2, that all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. We see this practical repentance in verse 4. We see that they actually actually do stuff. They, they, They repent with sledgehammers here. They destroy their idols. Uh, How often have you prayed the prayer? God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've done it again. You've prayed the prayer, but then you've done absolutely nothing to remove the sin from your life. You've prayed the prayer, but there's no accountability. There's no putting away the temptation. There's no confessing to the person that you have sinned against. There's no practical repentance. Well, not Israel here. They put away their false gods. They get rid of them and they serve the Lord only. They heed the call of Samuel. They repent. They turn back to God. And in turn, as they turn back to God, God provides them with peace and security. And the peace and security comes through having Samuel as their leader. Now, have a look there in verse 6. Uh, Verse 6, it says, uh, Now Samuel was serving as leader of Israel at Mizpah. Uh, Now that word leader uh, there, it's actually the word judge. Uh, You can see that in your little footnote in the Bible. Um, uh, Samuel was serving as judge of Israel. Uh, Now the word judge here in in this part of the Bible, it has a special significance. Uh, The the judges here were not like the guys, uh, girls who sit in a courtroom wearing robes and and, uh, funny uh, wigs of horse hair and they kind of hand down punishments on criminals. That's that's not this sort of judge. Uh, These judges were like Samson and Gideon, like the judges of old. They, 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 They were judges because they brought justice and they brought righteousness. They, they, they made everything right for the people of God. They brought peace between the people and God, and they brought peace between the people and their enemies, and they brought peace between the people themselves. 
And so here Samuel is a judge of Israel. He's leading God's people in this massive turnaround, turning back to God. And what do you think, what difference do you think that's made to their situation? What difference do you think this has made to their security situation? Well, we see this in the second scene, uh, verses 7 to 11. We see it makes a massive difference. They They have a victory over the Philistines. Now, we don't have time to press too much into the details, but look at verse 7. It's quite remarkable what happens here. Verse 7, when the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the ruler of the Philistines came up to attack them. Uh, When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. Now, the the Israelites are not irrational here to be afraid. Remember, it's just like the Wallabies going up against the All Blacks. Israel is down two games to nil. The first game they lost not too badly, but the second game they got well and truly served, uh, just like the Wallabies. Um, So they're a little bit afraid of the Philistines, but what does Israel do this time? As they're scared, what do they do? Do they kind of rush into battle like they did the first time without consulting God? Do they kind of rush back and grab the ark, their their special lucky charm to bring them the victory? No, it seems they've learnt their lesson. This time they are different. They say, verse 8, they said to Samuel, verse 8, do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he, that God, may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. You see, they've worked out the one who's going to bring them victory, haven't they? It's not their ark. It's not even Samuel. It's God. And Samuel prays them. He cries out to the Lord that the Lord might rescue them. And we see in verse 9 that the Lord answers. And we see in verses 10 and 11 that the, that the Lord delivers a great victory for the Israelites. He thunders against their enemies. And they have victory over the Philistines. And so here in the final scene in chapter 7, we get a picture of peace and security under Samuel as God's appointed leader. They enjoy security and peace with Samuel as their judge. Have a look in verse 13. Verse 13, so the Philistines were subdued and they had stopped invading Israel's territory. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. Uh, There's a picture of security, isn't it? No more invasions by the Philistines. And the cities that they had lost, well, they've been restored to Israel, back safe and secure. So Israel has this safety at their borders. And Israel has peace within. As Samuel the judge goes around, bringing restoration and peace within. Now we see this in verse 15. Samuel continued as Israel's leader, that is Israel's judge, all the days of his life. From year to year he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, all around Israel, judging in those places. Uh, Samuel travels around and he's putting everything right wherever he goes. He's calling the people to repentance. He's leading them in confession. He's praying to God for them. And Samuel, as God's appointed leader, as God's judge, he brings righteousness and peace to all of Israel. Samuel's leadership has transformed the people of God. They've turned back to God. They've got victory over the enemies. They enjoy this peace and security. But tragically, it doesn't last long. 
Uh, when we get to chapter 8, uh, Israel is facing another crisis of leadership. Uh, and again, in the face of that, they're, they're again searching for security, a place, a, a way that they can feel safe and secure so they can sleep well at night. And have a look uh, in chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, there is another leadership crisis. Chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel grew, Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second was Abijah. They served in Beersheba, but his sons did not follow in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. You see, there's the threat that is looming on the horizon. Uh, Samuel's leadership of Israel, it could not go on forever. And in his age, uh, Samuel seems to make some poor decisions uh, he, he decides that his sons will, will take his place. Uh, but it seems also that Israel are not trusting in God to provide them a leader. They see that Samuel is getting old and they think they freak out. They don't trust that God will provide someone else. So they, they start pleading with Samuel for a, a new leader. Uh, Samuel appoints his sons who are no good. And so what is Israel to do? They thought their peace that their security, that their safety, they thought it was a danger, at risk. And so where can they find the security now that Samuel is old? Well, have a look at their proposal in verse 5. Verse 5, they, that is the elders, they said to Samuel, you are old and your sons do not follow in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Give us a king, they say. That's what we want. You see, Samuel, if we had a king, a king could really establish Israel, could really make a name for us. You see, a king, a king could build stable structures and institutions. A king could have a permanent army, a standing army. We've never had one of those before. Just think how much safer we'd be. We had this army waiting there to fight our battles for us. And a king, you know, a king provides stability and a predictable center of authority. And, you know, a king, they would be a great focal point for us to, to gather around as a nation. If only we had a king. Give us a king, Samuel. And you can imagine the elders coming to Samuel like my son does whenever he wants to ask for a phone and says, kind of, Samuel, listen, mate, it's the Iron Age. Everyone's got a king. We need to get with the times. We don't want to be left behind. The king, a king is the way of the, way of the future. We need to have one now just like all the other nations have. You know, kings, they'll make us more efficient, more powerful, more secure. And on one level, at a first glance, the, the proposal for a king, it sounds reasonable. Even asking for a king is not like uh, dodgy. God, God promised back in Deuteronomy at some point in Israel's future they would have a king. So it's, it's kind of like, a you know, it does have some grounds. It does have some legs. But Samuel is not impressed. Samuel can see through it. And worse than that, look at verse 6 of chapter 8. Verse 6, But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. So what's wrong with their proposal? Well, their request for a king, it actually exposes their lack of faith. It exposes their refusal to trust in God. 
It's actually, in reality, a rejection of God and a rejection of his kingship over them. Uh, Think back to life when Samuel was judged in chapter 7. Who gave them their security? Who, Who gave them their peace? Who gave them a leader? Well, God did. God himself, God alone. It was God who thundered against the Philistines and defeated them. It wasn't Samuel. It wasn't any other human leader. And so this proposal to find security in a king, like all the other nations have, it's a rejection of God as their king. It's a refusal to trust God as their king. It's a refusal to find their security and their peace in God alone. I mean, look at the other nations. Look at their kings. Look at how they promise peace and security. Do their kings call their people to repent and turn back to the living God, like Samuel did as their God-appointed judge? Do their kings pray for their people? Do their kings lead their people in righteousness and justice, like Samuel did as their God-appointed judge? No. Well, then don't expect a king like the nations to provide the peace and security that you need. Actually, we get a warning. We get told what they can expect if they have a king like the nations. Uh, Chapter 8, verses 10 to 18, uh, Samuel warns the people, and he warns them of what will happen if they get what they ask for. And the warning is really simple. The warning is just three words. He will take He will take. Follow with me from verse 11. He said, that is God said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons. Verse 13, he will take your daughters. Verse 14, he will take the best of your fields. Verse 15, he will take a tenth of your grain. Verse 16, he will take for his own use. Verse 17, he will take a tenth of your flocks. Blind Freddy can see what's going on here. A king will take and take and take. He will take so much that a king will eventually take the people for himself. Have a look at verse 17. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. If you're familiar with the the, the Bible story, the irony here is clear to see, isn't it? Tragedy is clear to see. These are the people who have been freed from slavery in Egypt. These are the people who have been given blessing in the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. These are the people who are living in security and peace because God has fought their victories for them. And God is saying to them, if you want a king like all the nations, if you want to be just like everyone else, it will all be lost. Instead of peace, your sons will be pressed into battle. Instead of blessing, instead of enjoying the land of honey, your crops and your grain and your livestock will be taken for the king. Instead of freedom, you will ultimately become slaves again. If you reject God as your king, this is what will happen. And there'll be no turning back. Verse 18, when that day comes, you'll cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. You see, God is crystal clear. 
Israel are told, if you head down this road, if you head this direction, if this is what you really, really, really want, there are no takebacks, there are no exchanges, there are no refunds, there's no changing your mind on this one. And so do they heed the warning? Do they, do they hear it and, and, and turn back from it? Well, no. They're determined. Verse 18. Verse 18, but the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. And so how does God reply? Verse 21, then Samuel heard all the people said and he repeated it before the Lord. Verse 22, the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. It's ominous, isn't it? We'll see next week that uh, that's exactly what the people get. They'll have their king. God will let them see what it's going to be like to try and find their security in a human king, in a king like the nations. Uh, Sometimes the worst thing for us is to actually get what we want, isn't it? Uh, you only have to be the parent of a small child to know that um, often we want really dumb things uh, and, and it's loving and kind to not give us what we want. Now, I have a friend who uh, lived in London for a while and there's this uh, famous street in London called Brick Lane full of Indian restaurants uh, and he confidently uh, walked into a restaurant with a few mates and ordered the hottest curry on the menu uh, and the waiter warned him and said, you don't want to go there, uh, you really don't, you'll regret it. But he was there surrounded by his friends who he wanted to impress and he would not back down and he insisted, I'm having that one. The waiter couldn't talk him out of it. Two mouthfuls in and he regretted his decision. And you know the thing about spicy food, it's not just on the way in. Uh, He was regretting it the next day as well. And despite Israel's warning here, God was clear. You don't want this. This will not be good for you. This will turn out terribly. No, we want a king like the nations. Ultimately, Israel got what God warned them of. And for Israel, they'll go on to have many kings over the centuries. There'll be the rare exception of a good king that will come, but mostly the kings that they'll have will be exactly what is described here. Instead of peace, they'll press them into battle. Instead of blessing, the king will take and take and take. Instead of freedom and security, they will ultimately become his slaves. And even worse, they will ultimately become slaves of foreign kings as they are taken off to be exiles. And most importantly, instead of peace with God, these kings that will have over them, they will lead them into sin and idolatry and wickedness. They wanted safety and security. And in seeking a king, they've rejected God and they risk losing it all. Uh, Here in 21st century Wellington, uh, as we seek security and certainty in our lives, we run the same risk. We run the same risk as Israel. Uh, If you want to find security in your financial situation... If you think that that is going to be the thing that is going to make you safe and means that you can sleep well at night, 
Well, congratulations, you have just made money your king. Money is going to be the thing that's going to go out before you and fight your battles and keep you safe and protect your borders. And if that is the case, then, like every other king in this world, it's just going to take and take and take and take. It's going to take your time. It's going to take your sweat. It's going to take your stress. It's going to take your energy. It's going to take your relationships. It will take and take and take. And if you don't believe me, if you think there's some point where you'll, um, you'll have a handle on it, where you'll be able to control it, where you'll have enough money to feel safe and secure, well, hear this. Uh, there are people who have done research, and only 13% of people who have a million dollars in the bank, only 13% of them consider themselves to be rich. Michael Norton, a professor at Harvard Business School, he studies the connection between wealth and happiness and security, and this is his conclusion after a lifetime of work. He said, basically everyone says they need two or three times as much as they have in order to feel happy or secure. That's everyone from someone who is earning the the minimum wage right up to someone who's earning millions of dollars a year. Basically everyone says they need more if they're going to be secure and happy. We can never have enough. So we try and find our security and our finances. If that is our king, it will take and take and take until ultimately we become a slave. And the same goes for any other place that we might want to find our security and our peace. If it's a relationship, you'll give everything to that relationship. You'll put that relationship above everything and everyone else and that relationship will be your king. And so that relationship will take and take and take and you'll be enslaved. I think um, one of the ways that a lot of us here, myself included, I think one of the ways we're tempted to find our security is by fitting in. Israel wanted a king like all the other nations had. They, they, they wanted a king like all the other people. They, they wanted to fit in with the world around them. And not only was that a rejection of God as their king, but it was a rejection of who they were as God's holy people. As God's holy people, they were to be separate from the world. They were to be different from the world. They were, at their core, to not be like the nations. That's what it meant for them to be God's holy people, is to not be like the nations. And so when they turn to God and they say, we want a king who will keep us safe so we can be like all the other nations, it's a rejection of who they are, and it's a a quest to find their security by fitting in, by fitting in with the the world around them. And I think that's a great temptation that we all face. You know, it's safer in this life, particularly as the world around us gets more and more hostile to the, the, the message of the gospel and it gets more and more hostile to Christians and more and more hostile to what the Bible says on a whole bunch of topics. There is great pressure. It feels so much safer just to fit in, to, to not rock the boat, to not say something, to not upset people, to not make yourself a target. It feels much safer to just go with the flow to keep your head down. But if we do that, 
Well, the world around us will take and take and take. We will go with the flow and we'll be enslaved. Ultimately, we become enslaved to the opinions of others. And it is a dangerous thing to say, I'm not going to be like the world around me. I'm not going to find my security by fitting in with the world around me. I want to show you a photo. Um, do you notice anyone doing anything different in this photo? What's, a, what's it a photo of to start with? Sorry? Hitler yeah, Hitler rally, yeah. It's a photo taken from the launching of a boat, of a Navy boat for the, 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 the Nazi army in the 1930s. And they're giving the Nazi salute. Well, all of them are except one. If you can't see him, there's the next photo. There he is. And there's another one a little bit closer up. His name is Augustus Landsmere. He refused to fit in. He refused. And because he refused to fit in, uh, not because he didn't do the Nazi salute, but because he refused to fit in with the world around him, the world around him that was looking for its safety and security in this evil ideology, because he refused to fit in, it ended up costing him his wife and it ended up costing him his life. He refused to fit in because the world around him was just going to take and take and take until ultimately it made him a slave. And it's the same for us as well. We don't need a king to be like the nations. We don't need a king so that we can fit in. Because there was one king who was different. 2,000 years ago, a man stood before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and this man stood there in chains. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And this man replied, My kingdom is not of this world. You see, when we read the Gospels, when we read the biographies about Jesus, when we read them, we see that there is a king for God's people. But he is a king who is not like the kings of all the other nations. He is a king not like all the other places that we look for our security. He is a king who, whose kingdom is not of this world. He is a king whose kingship is completely different. He is a king who doesn't take, but he's a king who gives. He's a king who gives. You see, as they nailed this king to a cross, as Jesus was nailed to a cross, do you know what the sign above him said? King of the Jews. He gave himself for us. He gave himself for us so that we might not be like the nations. He gave himself for us so that we might not be slaves. He gave himself for us. And he continues to give himself for us. He is our good king. And the Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Timothy, There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, and that is the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself. He gave himself as a ransom for many. 
And so what's going to mean that you can sleep well at night? Knowing that your future is secure? Knowing that your eternal future is secure? It's not going to be by fitting in with those around you. It's not going to be by having the most toys, the biggest nest egg. It's going to be by having Jesus as our King. Ruling and reigning over us, bringing peace with God that lasts into all eternity. Giving us the security of an eternal inheritance that can never perish, spoil and fade. So I invite you, I, 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 I plead with you to find your security in Jesus. The King who came not to take, but to give. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. Lord, we are faced with so many other competing kings in our world, ones that want to take and take and take. But Lord, we thank you that Jesus is the king who gives, that he gave himself up for us, that he laid down his life on the cross for us so that we might not be slaves to this world, but that we might be your people safe and secure, knowing that our sins are forgiven, knowing that our eternal home is secure, because you have won the victory over our greatest enemies, over the enemies of sin and death and evil. And Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen.